0: Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah, a registered associate nutritionist and your favourite crazy bean. Full of Beans is on a mission to reduce eating disorder stigma and increase eating disorder awareness. Together, we will establish inspiring conversations with a range of individuals, including those with personal experience and their loved ones, as well as clinicians, researchers and charities who are all working to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Using my personal battle with atypical anorexia and body dysmorphia, as well as my masters in eating disorders and clinical nutrition, we will together explore the experiences of like-minded individuals who are equally as passionate about sharing their stories, to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Please note that this podcast discusses sensitive topics and should not be seen as a replacement for evidence-based therapy or treatment. Today I am joined by James Downs. James is an eating disorder and mental health activist who works with the Royal College of Psychiatrists, NHS England and Mind Charity, as well as being an ambassador for MQ Mental Health, a mental health charity which aims to increase understanding regarding mental health problems so that one day they can all be prevented. James joins us today to discuss his recovery and journey of self-discovery away from his eating disorder, including his love of yoga. We will also be discussing his incredible work For eating disorder awareness and a range of eating disorder topics. Hello, James.
1: Hi, nice to be on your podcast.
0: How are you doing today?
1: I'm all right, thank you. I'm a little bit tired, but I suppose that's just lockdown fatigue. I'm getting to everybody, but I'm all right, thank you. I'm quite looking forward to talking about eating disorders and Mm -hmm. all sorts of other subjects. I'm also a little bit ambivalent about it because I talk about my experiences a lot Mm -hmm. but often that's for a really specific audience so I'll know I'm speaking to clinicians and I need to give these points or policymakers, and I need to give this message so it's a bit more personal I guess Mm -hmm. today and that feels a little bit more vulnerable but I think there's something important about being able to be vulnerable um, within reason I guess and that hopefully people listening will find it useful.
0: Yeah definitely and I think you're right by you putting yourself out there and being vulnerable I think that lets other people listen and connect with you and gives other people the chance to share their story maybe if they've not been able to before.
1: I agree. And I think that we hear quite a lot of similar stories about eating disorders. Or certainly when I grew up, I only thought there was one kind of eating disorder that affected one kind of person. So I think it's part of my mission to get it out there that eating disorders can happen to anybody, whatever they look like, whatever they sound like on a podcast. Uh, (laughs) And that, you know, eating disorders are very varied. And we have to readdress that balance, I guess, of what the stereotypical view is of an eating disorder.
0: Yeah, sure. So, Just to start us off today, did you want to start by, I guess, giving sort of a brief story of your eating disorder? and?
1: Yeah, I think like a lot of these stories, it's quite long and complicated. <laughs> and I don't want to go through all of the ups and downs of it. And yeah. certainly not just the downs, because I have learned a lot from having had an eating disorder. And mm. I was first diagnosed with anorexia when I was 14, 15 years old. But I originally had OCD and depression, and struggled a lot in school with feeling really under and not being able to regulate my attention. And I guess regulation is central to my experiences of not feeling well or of recovery learning to regulate different things and that's been different physiological drives different drives in terms of my attention regulating my attention and regulating my relationships regulating my emotions and I think that the times that I've been really unwell the regulation has been really out of balance in lots of different ways and the times where I felt better including now I think the regulation is more within balance but it's always going to be a permanent kind of balancing act Mm -hmm. and a process that I have to be really aware of, But yeah, over the years, I've had some really difficult experiences. And I suppose I try and separate the experiences in my head between the experiences that have been the eating disorder itself. So obviously living with an eating disorder is very, very difficult. And I've lived with anorexia and then bulimia. And bulimia is kind of like the worst hangover from anorexia ever in my experience. Um, and you know, we know it's a very common route into bulimia is from anorexia when you restore weight. And I think that's something that we need to research a lot more about. But I think that my experience of the actual eating disorders has been really awful. And I'm going to be honest about that. But then on top of that, I think I've had difficult experiences in terms of treatment, which actually haven't really been to do with the eating disorder. So, Mm. you know, it's bad enough to live with a mental health problem. But then if you then have difficulties with trying to access help, or you have really painful experiences of not being able to get help or having help that is the opposite of helpful, then that's another problem in itself. So I've actually had quite a lot of experiences of traumatic events or difficulties in healthcare settings that have not been the eating disorder itself, but they've been as a result of having an eating disorder and needed to get in those healthcare setting so I guess I try and separate those out in my head because actually feeling trauma from my experiences in healthcare isn't the same as the eating disorder but we know that often these things happen together and Mm -hmm. I think that trying to differentiate them helps me a little bit. And these days I don't struggle with complex trauma, which I was later diagnosed with. I manage that really well, but I still struggle with bulimia. But I think that when I look back over my really long story of having an eating disorder, I think it's really sad that extra problems were kind of added in because, like I said, it's hard enough to have the eating disorder in the first place. And when you don't feel understood or you feel like people who should be helping you aren't helping you or are actually harming you then that makes everything 10 times worse and what i hope in the future is that anybody who has an eating disorder is helped to identify that it's a problem and is offered support rather than has to fight to access support yeah. because that struggle to access support at the moment for too many people is a huge fight the energy of that fight should be going into you know recovering from the eating disorder and i think it's such a shame that services aren't more available to people so that motivates me I guess in my work and I work in lots of different roles like you mentioned with different organizations to try and improve things but sometimes it gets quite depressing that change doesn't happen fast enough and you know I was diagnosed 16 17 years ago and I would have hoped that things were better now and they are in some ways but actually the number of people with eating disorders is increasing and we've seen that Mm. especially over the last year with lockdowns so it's all a really big complex subject and the lived experience of it can be really complex as well but so is the policy and I think sometimes that can feel really overwhelming and it's hard to know where to start when you talk about your own experiences especially if you've had them for a long time but it's also hard to know where to start in improving the system to help people
0: yeah and so if we just talk a bit more about you which I know it's not something that you're keen on doing but when did recovery start for you and what did that look like? I know we've spoken in the past about your self-discovery with yoga. Was that was yoga the cure, like quote-unquote cure, or was it something more as part of your recovery?
1: Yeah, I think that yoga has really helped me, but it's not been that easy story of, oh, I turned up to a yoga class and then I became <laughs> enlightened and I no longer have an eating disorder and,
0: and everything's expect. great.
1: I'm sorry to disappoint. But yeah, it's a lovely sort of narrative isn't it and we love these stories of transformation and overcoming and all these things and I think that that's the acceptable mental health story and it's the one that the media loves but Mm -hmm. it's not always reality and things are sometimes a bit messier than that or a bit more chaotic or don't fit so neatly into that nice package story of recovery Mm -hmm. and so I'm still in recovery and I'm not happy about that. I would love to have be done with recovery. I'm not a fan of recovery, I want it to be over, but that's part of my personality and also something I have to work with, that I have to be patient, that things do take time and undoing very heavily ingrained behaviours takes a long time. It takes a long time for your body to adjust. It takes a long time for your mental processes and your emotions to adjust. And I think all these things are really related, but my experiences of treatment kind of frustrated me because, I often felt like we spent a lot of time sitting in a room, looking at the problem and getting really good at looking at problems rather than actually doing anything about it. And I always wanted to stand up and like draw something or dance something or I don't know, rip up the manual of therapy. (laughs) And I, I always found the therapy room really constraining. And so I struggled with that for a long time. And then I ended up doing dialectical behavior therapy, which is DBT for short, which I kind of describe as CBT on acid, which (laughs) is probably not not a very politically correct way of describing it, but it's very intense. And that's what I needed because replacing very ingrained, rehearsed, automatic, and effective behaviors, because we have to remember that eating disorder behaviours are very effective, otherwise people wouldn't have them. You know, if you're going to get anywhere near as effective as eating disorder behaviours, you're going to need a whole raft of other skills to help you. And that's what DBT trains you in. And I found mindfulness through DBT because it's one of the underlying principles of the therapy, which is one thing that really appeals to me about it, about recognising what exactly is going on in this moment. And it does talk about physiological sensations and, you know, your, your emotional sensations in the body. And I thought that's really interesting because that's not what therapy has been for me. It's always been, your thinking is wrong. You need to fix the thinking, fix your behavior. And yeah, hopefully you'll feel better. But I loved that focus on uh, the embodied feelings within the body. And I suppose that I, in my classical kind of all or nothing kind of way, <laughs> went on a meditation retreat it was obvious that I should have been doing dbt right because I was very extreme and I needed to come into the middle ground which is what it's all about and regulation and everything but yes I went on the eight hours a day retreat (laughs) meditating and nearly lost my mind because it was too much too soon Mm -hmm. but that's how I worked and I found out yeah there's something in this that is very useful but sitting down and meditating is really, really hard for some of those same reasons that it's really hard just to sit down and look at problems, right? And it can be very exposing and and feel really raw. And what helped me was moving as well. So because I felt it really difficult to just sit with my experience sometimes, I found it easier if I'd done some movement first. Mm or if I'd moved in a kind of mindful way. So we did a couple of walk-in meditations on that retreat and there was a bit of yoga, which I sort of tried once and then also found it a bit awkward because I didn't like my body being in front of other people. Mm So I had this insight that there's something here that really would help me if I could go into it further. I went into it all the way and then pulled back out again. And so later on, having thought all the time, you know, there's something that I need I need to get back into that meditation or get back into yoga. Several years passed of just thinking I should do it, I should do it, I should do it, and wanting to do it and bookmarking all the places where I could go and do yoga classes, but never doing it because I knew that it would be good for me and I couldn't allow myself to do something that would be good for me. Mm -hmm. And then I had a boyfriend who was doing yoga every day and he was like, oh, you should come to yoga. Um, You might like it. And so I did go to yoga and I felt like I was coming home. And that is a really nice narrative, right? And that's the story that we probably want to hear. But <laughs> it it did feel like that. I felt like, oh, this is what I should be doing. I absolutely loved it. I did the teacher training. And like then I started to find out that it wasn't about doing all the shapes and doing them really well and doing them like really deep, being really strong, or being really flexible. I realised actually there's so much more to this. And I always knew that, but I also knew my tendencies to go into things at 100 miles an hour. And I think that yoga was never 100% punishing. because I used to run a lot before, mm. I used to be into other kinds of exercises that were really dangerous and were really part of my eating disorder. And I used to go for runs and wake up in hospital. You know, and I ran a half marathon on like stress fractured feet. Like it was just so compulsive and so damaging and dangerous. And yes, I shouldn't have gone to back to back yoga classes straight away when I wasn't eating as much as I should have been eating in hot hot yoga rooms, all that kind of stuff. I shouldn't have done that. But at least there was somewhere in the mix with yoga that was saying you don't have to be pushing yourself all the time. Mm. And there's always a relaxation at the end. And that was the really hard bit for me. But I still did it. I still let myself do that, even though I felt like I had to earn it by doing really well during the class. And I think that becoming a teacher and teaching, my messaging is all about not having to go further all the time, not having to earn anything because yoga tells you that you're inherently whole and worthy and that you don't have to earn rest that you don't have to be performing all of the time and that the measure of yoga is not what it looks like it's Mm -hmm. all about your connection with yourself and we know that connection is sometimes really painful we don't always feel really good and to come into your body and feel your physical sensations and your emotions because emotions are called feelings for a reason we feel them in our bodies that can be awful, that can, be re- that can feel really mm. difficult. But if we decide that we're gonna shut off our bodies because we don't like some of the feelings, then unfortunately we're probably gonna shut off most of the feelings. Because yeah. it's like you can't have separate channels for your emotions. I tried to squash all of my emotions for a very long time and anorexia was very convenient for that because when the body shuts down physically, you don't have to feel as much. Yeah. And that probably at some point, saved my life in some ways because I couldn't cope with those feelings Mm. but it really risked my life in other ways but allowing all those feelings to come back in meant that yes there were some really painful ones but there were also really joyful ones and really fantastic feelings in my body that I had not allowed myself to have you know either so I think that yoga has been really important about connecting with my body as a vehicle, you know, our bodies are a vehicle for our whole lives. And so we better get to know them, I suppose, mm-hmm. is my attitude. But it's not about controlling them, you know, or I need to be the master of my limbs or the master of my body or the master of my mind. It's as much about I can't really control half of the things that I'm thinking or feeling in this moment. Maybe if I look at the bigger picture, I can try and put myself into a zone where difficult feelings are less likely to happen, but they're never going to stop. And so I suppose yoga helped me to feel safe in my body when I'd felt fundamentally unsafe for so long. It helped me to realise that I can tolerate and regulate emotions, even if I don't like them, and that things pass and all these really helpful things that, you know, DBT had introduced me to a lot of these ideas, but then said, off you go, do it yourself at home. (laughs) Whereas yoga helped me to put it into a bit of a structure. But it's just I am fascinated by what I can find even in really small movements, Mm. which is a huge change for me because I was always like, I'll only pay attention to my body when it's shouting out at me in pain, which is what a lot of people do when they're stretching a lot, You know, they're waiting to feel the stretch. I'm like, actually I can choose to pay attention to that, that really small mundane movement in my body. And that is so liberating Mm -hmm. when it was always the other way around and that's a real massive psychological change for me that's not about extremes it's about being in the middle ground and i guess that's one of the big lessons in my life and that's the same with relationships same with food and eating and diet and exercise and libido and all these different things and attention so i guess that regulation and coming somewhere into the middle ground has been my recovery but it's involved discovering things about me that I didn't know and discovering different activities Like I would never have thought that I would be a yoga teacher if you'd have said that when I was younger and now I teach dance as well like I was the most awkward geeky teenager ever and now I'm like teaching my bar classes and like getting funky music on in front of everybody and I don't care at all <laughs> and that is so empowering and I think that there are some things that I've been noticing recently that are just so different from when I was younger like somebody was asking me about being weighed the other day I love being weighed because I'm just so happy that I can do that and not care about it yeah and it shows me that change is possible Mm -hmm. and that you can be a million miles away from where you were but it's a lot of things that have to fall into place or, or a lot of different experiences that have to happen
0: yeah, absolutely. I think it's really nice though that you spoke about kind of the the yoga and kind of feeling such small things because I think very much when we're in the eating disorder mindset, it's it's all about the big things. It, you, it's just stupid things. But like this year, I've noticed flowers so much more, and I know that's not in obviously yeah. like in me, but it's it's given me that mental space to notice the little things around me rather than focusing on like the eating disorder itself and I think that's so nice that you've been able to find that and I guess another thing is that when we are in that eating disorder you you are the eating disorder as well like James is the eating disorder whereas having that time of rediscovery allows you to find who you actually are and who you want to be rather than anorexia bulimia it's
1: such yeah it's such an important point because I spent a lot of time feeling like nobody ever saw me as anything other than an eating disorder and being completely defined by that in other people's eyes Mm. and I think that that is so difficult and it was a really long time before anybody asked me what do you want your life to be like I think they just assumed that I was intelligent that I had talents and that if I wanted to do something I would do something think my way out of it somehow which (laughs) doesn't really work does it and often you know I'd go into A&E and I was a medical student for a while and they would say they'd see it on my records oh you're a medical student you know what you're doing to yourself uh why are you doing it And I was like, yeah, I can explain exactly what happens in the potassium level in the body and everything. And I know exactly what's going on. It doesn't make it any easier to manage. In fact, it makes it worse because I know exactly what's happening and I can't do anything about it. It's so disempowering and you lose your feeling of agency. And it's like, well, I don't have any power over this and nobody is seeing me as anything more than this and asking me, well without your eating disorder, what would you want your life to be like? The only conversations that I had were around, if you carry on with your eating disorder, your life will be terrible, or you won't have a life. And it was always very, and I think that it was such a negative way of viewing things and what I would have loved would have been somebody saying, what would your life be like without it? Or what would you want? And then somebody helping me to feel that that was possible because I couldn't even dare to think of what life would be like without the eating disorder because I thought, well, no point thinking that because I'm never going to get there and I think something about recovery is that people have to think that something is achievable for them and you you know might struggle with that if your confidence has been knocked by having tried things and they've not worked or trying asking ask for help and nobody's given it and I felt like I'd failed at treatment so much that I was never going to get better and people told me that I wasn't going to get better I was told as a teenager you will never recover as a teenager. And I think this is completely the wrong way of looking at it. It's so negative and it really reinforces how that can you sort be of...
0: hopeful with that? Yeah,
1: how can you be? They were like, you're going to live with this for the rest of your life if you're lucky kind of thing. And I think it's like a scare tactic, isn't it? You know, better scare them into getting better. Scaring people into getting better, I don't think works. I think it's a real fear-based tactic. I knew exactly what I was doing to my body you know, telling me that all the children in Africa are starving didn't help either because I just then felt really awful. And I think we have to be positive about it and, you know, not unrealistic because that's on the other hand, people saying, oh, well, you know, you're bright, you'll be able to be fine or you're the expert, which is what I get now, I'll go for help now. Well, you're the expert really. And I'm like, well, it doesn't mean I don't need you to care for me. You know, I know I've written the guidelines, but like, please, (laughs) please help me. so I think we need to be much more positive about it. I would call you out a little bit or challenge you on the eating disorder mindset or mm-hmm. me being in the eating I mean, what is the eating disorder mindset?
0: I suppose I've always seen it as, and I'm, maybe this isn't the same for everybody, but my thoughts when I am deep in my eating disorder change and it's, I become so much more rigid so much more controlled i feel so much more kind of caged in and lack the flexibility to just do whatever i want to do and another thing for me i would still say to this day now struggle with compulsive exercise mm-hmm. and i know when i'm let's say finger quoting marks again in that eating sort of mindset exercise is everything and if anybody gets in my way then go like leave me alone because I've got to do this and if anybody tries to touch my food or make me food or say let's go out for food I can't yeah but then when I kind of move away from that I feel a lot more flexible I am yeah. I'm, I'm I'm Hannah again I'm yeah. who I want to be
1: yeah this is really interesting and it's one of my interests in terms of treatment and research and everything I think it's difficult for me when people say oh well when when you're in the eating disorder or the eating." You know, you've got that eating disorder voice or something, as though we're talking about the same thing for everybody. Because, like you've said, you've talked about your experience and your experience of that, and that's your experience. But for me, I've never had an eating disorder voice or something, which a lot Mm. of people do talk about. And a lot of clinicians talk about the eating disorder voice. And that's an area of research that I think needs to really be looked at because I think the eating disorder voice really helps carers, especially. And I think that it probably helped my parents to think, okay, that's not james that's the eating disorder talking mm. yeah but for me i've never felt that i've had that eating disorder voice and people telling me that's the eating disorder talking sort of like well i you're putting that on me and that's not what mm. i feel so i think that that's really important to think about how that's individual for different people and yeah. that's the, that's goes for the whole of treatment doesn't it really thinking okay. about you know what are yeah. people's real experiences but assuming that somebody else has the same experience. I'm not saying that you did, but it's a way that we talk. And sometimes it <laughs> yeah, kind of right. gets a bit sort of, of an assumption that everyone's going through the same thing. And like my experience of anorexia would be completely different from somebody else's mm-hmm. possibly, or, or bulimia, and it's back to that point of eating disorders being, being really different and really different for different people. And that has to be remembered all the time. I think that's sort of got to go over everything.
0: With regards to like that eating disorder voice, For me, it was a way of kind of being able to identify myself as a distinct body, I guess, from the eating disorder because I don't believe anything it says, but I feel like it's a compulsion to follow it. And again, I'm saying what it says. It's not actually like that I can hear something external that is different, but I know deep down that, sort of the thoughts I'm having around the food, when I'm okay, they're not there. So for me, yeah. it was a way of like distinction it and saying that I am not my eating disorder. I am something separate and this is something that's happening yeah. to me, but there will be a point where, and I think this is the thing as well. I've spoken to so many people about this in recovery, like everybody expects that when you are in recovery, you're never going to think distorted thought about your body, about food, about anything ever again. And I think for some people that's possible, but for other people, it might be just learning to recognise that thought and Mm. then doing something productive about it.
1: I mean i think there are loads of people who don't have eating disorders who have distorted thoughts about food and their body quite a lot of the time and they don't have eating disorders and and would never fit the sort of criteria for them and it's Mm. kind of a normal experience actually and we can't expect ourselves to never have any of these things ever i think that's just not going to be realistic and maybe not desirable like i think that's something really to be said about how useful it is for people to externalize the eating disorder Mm. yeah i think i think that's really important and also it can take away some of the The blame and the shame if you can think of it as something that's sort of happening to you but I've never really liked that just for me and I think Mm -hmm. that it's difficult for me if everyone assumes that that's what everyone has or you go into treatment and everyone's assuming that's what's going on for you because like for me externalizing it making it into this other thing that I am fighting against just wasn't my understanding of it in terms of actually acceptance for me was much more important and unlocked my ability to work with and change some of those eating disorder behaviors and thoughts and and feelings and everything because if I was constantly sort of pushing against it and fighting against it that made me feel worse Mm. so I think that I went more down the I'm not saying that you didn't, I I just think that I found that approach more helpful for me and seeing this is is all part of my experience and I have to accept these experiences. And it doesn't mean that you're giving up, it's just this sort of dialectic that we would talk about in in DBT between acceptance and change. And a lot of the time when I've wanted to recover, I've just been change, 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 everything's gotta change now and it's all gonna be perfect within one week. (laughs) And then actually you hit a brick wall and you're like, no, yeah. And if you're just all complete acceptance, then you're like, I'm going to live with this forever. Nothing's going to change and you're going to be unwell. Yeah. So for me, I had to be somewhere in between and the eating disorder voice part was a bit too much on the change part for me. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to accept this at all. It's not me. It's not my experience. I need to fight it. And for me, actually, living with the eating disorder was such a fight anyway. Yeah. I didn't want to feel like I was battling and it was as much about... Letting go, actually, as it has been about fighting and pushing and overcoming. It's been an element in there of surrendering. And then strangely, being able to let go Mm. rather than sort of push away or...
0: I think I agree with you, though, because on the whole acceptance front, there are some things you know about my personal experience with my eating disorder that I didn't like and I did want to change those and I wanted to get rid of them but other things you know if I wasn't such a perfectionist and I wasn't so rigid with kind of like progression and stuff I don't think I would be as good in my education as I possibly would because I am very like I'm very driven I'm very motivated which has allowed me to set goals for myself and achieve them in academia like and a in podcast like, like, like a podcast <laughs> like yeah. doing a podcast it wouldn't be this successful would it if it wasn't for it so in that way I guess that's me accepting this is Hannah and you know unfortunately certain things did happen that weren't great but like we were saying before it's learning from those rather than just letting them take over you and be like oh well i slipped up again like it's it's having that sort of reflection
1: yeah i've been joking a lot about some things about me but i've learned so much about myself through having had these difficulties whether it's been the eating disorder or the traumatic experiences or other mental health problems i've learned so much Mm -hmm. and some of that is You know, I can be quite all or nothing and I have to work with that and I have to come into the middle ground all the time. And if I wasn't aware of that and didn't learn that, I would have wreaked chaos in my life and probably other people's lives, too. And I think that it's so important to have that acceptance and that awareness. And I've learned so much about other people. I think I would have. I I mean, I can't tell really but I might have been awful had I have just gone straight to uni when I was supposed to go to uni like it was very painful that it didn't happen and I didn't play music for Mm -hmm. eight years you know and couldn't even listen to classical music but how arrogant maybe would I have been if that had been me or how you know how unthoughtful could I have been about other people's experiences Mm -hmm. and it's been a massive reality check in some ways obviously I wouldn't wanted to have had it I wouldn't wish it on anybody yeah. but I've learned loads about myself and so much about other people mm-hmm. it's given me so much insight into other people so much empathy I hope for other people and their experiences and has given me this view that you know there is no one way of viewing things there is no one understanding of everything and that you know maybe there are privileged understandings or some people's voices and stories that get heard more than others and I'm really aware that I have a privileged voice that I'm an articulate person who can talk about mental health and that lots of people don't have that privilege. So when I'm talking about policy or when I'm doing work in campaigning, you know, I'm not a huge fan of talking about my experiences although like this is probably not <laughs> very good evidence for that. But that was partly why I was a bit reluctant today because I was like, oh, I'm a bit tired of talking about myself because yeah, my experiences can be useful for people, but Actually, what I do now is I try and facilitate other people to have their voices heard, or I do that peer research work or lived experience facilitation. And I've told my story enough times, like, I don't need it to always be uh, about me. And I think that, you know, people do need to tell their stories. And that is really important.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it is so important that we, there is a narrative or a stigma of eating disorders and... Just by doing this podcast, I think, you know, when I started this podcast, I was like, oh, yeah, I know so much about eating disorders because I did my masters. I know everything. Then you start talking to people, and there is no one, okay, they had an eating disorder because this happened to them, or they went through treatment and they had this sort of treatment and it worked for them, or they did it this way. And that's another thing, what I was saying earlier about this whole like being in the middle, you know, it's great that I and loads of people that you talk to are talking about all the different types of eating disorders but still there's those people on the outside that only think of anorexia and it's getting to them I think is the most important thing but also like for me I think the most important thing is it's that prevention educating people before it's even happened having the conversations in a way that you can have those open conversations there's no stigma attached with it it's it's providing people the correct information rather than the misinformation
1: yeah and this piece that we've done for the lancet about young people you know it is really important that schools can talk about these things schools aren't there to be therapists or to be professionals Mm -hmm. uh, aside from education but it is important that they can provide people with information they need to live healthy, happy lives, you know, as much as possible. Yeah, and I would love to flip the whole model of treatment on its head, really, because I think now we have a very tight funnel into specialist help and services, and that's for a very, very small minority of people. Like I said, you know, most people will never get any help, and that includes if they're asking for it. And actually, what if we didn't have to access services, you know, as though you're trying to access some kind of really narrow pathway over a rope over a ravine or something you know, like which has many hurdles to jump over that's literally what it feels like for a lot of people and um, what if we offered services what if we reached out to people what if we had people going into different settings like gyms or going and reaching out into communities and, and screening people for eating disorders without obviously giving them ideas you know i think it's really interesting to think about how we could flip the model on its head. But like you said, there are so many misconceptions about eating disorders or lots of things I hear about eating disorders that really frustrate me. I think we have quite a narrow view of what recovery looks like. I think if you look at Instagram or you look at certain communities, you know, there is one view of recovery. And you know, we all need to be eating cakes and having coffee. And that's what recovery looks like. And well, what if recovery doesn't look like that for me. And so you know, these experiences of illness, we need to think about, well, can we reflect them more accurately or have more diversity and also about recovery, because recovery looks really different for different people. At the worst end, we think recovery is just about your weight in anorexia. And that doesn't work. We know that doesn't work. It's about so many other things as well. And if it was just about weight, then what about everybody who's not underweight, who also have eating disorders? But I think that there are lots of different sort of assumptions that are made about eating disorders, like you said, about what causes them, about what recovery looks like, about what works, about what doesn't work.
0: The one I want to ask you about is control.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just dropping that one in I'm and waiting just, for me to explode. Yeah, I'm just, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm
0: just waiting for you to backfire. I think a lot of people think that eating disorders are about regaining control or feeling out of control and the eating disorder is one thing you control can control. And I've heard about that a lot during COVID in that we are living in a society where everything is, you know, we can't even control whether we can see our friends. People have said that eating disorders have increased because you can control what you eat. So what is your opinion on that?
1: Yeah, I think it's subtle. So like most things, I think it's subtle. And that's been the education of my life is that things aren't black and white, like all these different examples that I've given. And that's my main message here. The thing that really gets me about this narrative is when people say eating disorders are all about control because nothing is all about anything for, for a start. But it really, really frustrates me because for me, yeah, when people say, oh, you need to feel like you're in control. Well, I'm like, well, control isn't a feeling. Yeah. So if we're talking about this emotionally, it's not about needing a feeling of control. It might be about a sense that you're in control or a thought or a belief that you're in control. But if we're looking at that from an emotional level, then what is it really about? And I love emotion focused approaches to that. It's kind of like what I was saying, Like instead of just thinking about it or sitting down and looking at the problem, what are we feeling and, and what's the embodied experience like? And I guess for me, if it's all about anything, those ways of controlling food and body and exercise and all kinds of other things, especially as somebody with OCD, that isn't about control. It's not all about control. It's about safety and a feeling of safety. And safety is one of our core emotional needs. If you look at emotion-focused therapy, for example, it's one of the core emotional needs is to feel safe safe from threat or, for me, safe from very difficult feelings in my body. So Mm -hmm. the way that I was controlling my body, controlling my food, controlling my behaviours, that wasn't all about control. That was control in order to not feel fundamentally unsafe. And it was a fake, it was a false sense of security that I had. It wasn't real necessarily. But I don't know, physically it was, it was, it worked. Mm. It just wasn't sustainable. It was, you know, it was going to damage my health over the long-term and it was very, very risky. But I got what I needed emotionally out of it in that time. And I decided at some point, this can't carry on. And I need to try and meet that need in other ways because it's just too limiting and it's too dangerous. And, you know, I'll lose my life completely. And that's not what I fundamentally wanted. Mm. And I don't, you know, I can only, Speak from my own personal experiences about what it's like to live with, but I haven't found it about control mm. actually. And then, especially with bulimia, bulimia is very, very chaotic and you know, feels very out of control a lot of the time. And overeating and not feeling like you can control that, or seeing your bank balance drain away as you're spending money on binge eating foods like that doesn't feel like you're in control at all. And the way other people respond to you with your problems that is out of your control Mm -hmm. and so i'd i'd say that maybe control is more of a thing in anorexia or restrictive eating disorders maybe but if we're talking about eating disorders in general well eating disorders are not all about anorexia and they're not all about control they're not all about anything maybe maybe they're a lot about our, our feelings and our emotional needs to be safe to feel like our experiences are real and to feel like we're worth something you know maybe maybe it's about bigger questions than that and I suppose the further you get into eating disorder behaviours, sometimes the more out of touch you might get with meeting those needs in other ways and Mm -hmm. I think that's been one of my big really big lessons in recovery is that if I'm going to stop using eating disorder behaviors I'm going to have to meet these needs in lots of different ways and I was really bad at it when I started that I didn't know how to meet my need for safety without the constancy of eating difficulties mm. to always go to, because they're always there. They're always going to be there. You know, a, a boyfriend's not always going to be there, <laughs> you know, you know, but, but, you know, ha- trying to go for other options is really difficult because eating disorders, like I said, are so effective and they're, yeah. they're constant. They're It's always something I could go back to, you know, even if I completely mm. recover and I could have empathy for, for that because if you're really struggling no wonder people rely more on, on eating behaviors because they give something but I don't know if it's control at its heart
0: mm. I guess the the blanket statement of control is again like we were saying before in kind of trying to put everybody into the same bucket of you all like control so we can target control and then that's going to help you recover from your eating disorder it's that everybody's the same mentality again which isn't the truth and like you said I think it's really interesting actually that you said control isn't necessarily you know binge eating disorder bulimia but it is anorexia and that just is another demonstration of the fact that we focus on anorexia when we talk about eating disorders because I think people do think eating disorder anorexia control
1: I think they do. I think you're absolutely right with that. And I think that we focus on that in treatment, like people have to get out of their comfort zone and stuff. And this is one thing that maybe annoys me about recovery communities and things, that people are having their recovery challenges and challenging their eating disorder as though it's this external thing, or having recovery wins, you know, all the time by by eating one of their their fear foods. I'm kind of on the fence about it, because I'm. is it really necessary For somebody to eat the food that gives them 95 out of 100 anxiety. But how much is that going to impinge my quality of life? I know lots of people who don't have eating disorders, who have foods they don't eat for weird... There are are lots of questions there around that, and I also have some thoughts about, you know, whether we need to understand the metabolism more in eating disorders and the effects over the long term. Because one thing that I've really struggled with is uh, low blood sugar, which really sort of brought it home that actually the body can have some long-term physiological changes if you live with an eating disorder for a very long time. And, and so actually what stabilized my, my blood sugar was sort of cutting out some of those foods. And that's not what I would say everybody should do. Mm. And it's definitely about, you know, not being extreme and rigid about it. But that's, you can see that's a really confusing place Absolutely. to be in if your eating disorder caused this physiological change that you then I, have to manage in a way that doesn't fit the stereotype.
0: I suppose the the thing that stands out there to me is, personally, I did do a fear food challenge once, and it changed nothing, because yes, I ate the foods, but I wasn't getting to the core of why they were scaring me. And for me personally, it was about understanding the emotions behind that, and what mm. I felt I was going to you know, what what that detrimental effect would be, and that was the issue, and that's what I needed to work on. And I think, you know, with regards to you um, and sugary foods, I think, yes, if you have got a a medical issue that means you can't have them, it's, it's those thoughts behind it, like, I'm not gonna have the sugary foods because they will have this effect on me, which would be really bad for my health, or I'm not going to have that because I'm scared of XY and Z. Yeah. I think there's that distinction there that I'm yeah, I completely agree if it's having an effect on your physical health then, you know, the sugary foods might not be ideal, but if it's literally I'm terrified of eating them and I can't eat them because of those thoughts then I think it's a different scenario. Yeah,
1: I think the thing I was getting at is it can just feel a bit excluding in terms of, mm. you know, what what we view recovery as. And yeah. you're so right, like, I eat other things instead and I'm a massive fan of high-fat foods now. That changed my life. Like, I was eating very low-fat diet for a very long time and I think that I'll never go back to no-fat dairy <laughs> products, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and gross. And so I'm very enthusiastic about food actually and I really enjoy eating quite a lot of foods and not worrying about it or not feeling like I have to restrict my eating Mm. and trying to challenge that. I think that's where the, the challenge is at but it's less of a challenge to me now because I enjoy it.
0: Yeah I think you're completely right. Recovery does look different for everybody and we need to take that on board so that people do get the kind of treatment that is required for them rather than just what is expected to be correct from them because that's what we assume I also think that it's important we recognize the fact that where we sit you know you and I do a lot in eating disorders we know a lot about it and so it feels like everybody knows about eating disorders but fundamentally you can go out and if you went onto the street not everybody would know about Eating disorders and the awareness. So, how in your work are you making sure that you're challenging those stereotypes, but equally making sure you're reaching people that aren't interested in eating disorders? Because I think that's where we need to kind of target those stigmas as well.
1: Yeah, I think there are two things there. One is the awareness raising part of it. Like you said, when you work in awareness raising, everyone you're talking to is increasing their awareness because they're part of that conversation. And you think, oh my goodness, everybody knows about eating disorders. Isn't it amazing? And then You know, you go outside of that bubble and people don't know about it or they don't know what different eating disorders are. And it's easy to get into that echo chamber of thinking that everybody's on the same page as you. And it's really not true. Otherwise, we wouldn't need Eating Disorders Awareness Week every year or we wouldn't need all these awareness raising events. And of course, awareness isn't everything. Right. It's great for people to know about eating disorders. It's great for people to be told to ask for help. But if they ask for help and the help isn't there, then that is really distressing for people and people can then maybe blame themselves for not being sick enough or not, you know, being worthy of attention and support Mm -hmm. and care. And that's something that really happened to me. And I felt that I was not sick enough, or I was too sick at some points, I was never in the right sort of category to get the right treatment at the right time. And I thought it was my fault. And now I know from the policy side of things that it was not my fault. But if that's what the world is telling you, then you are going to believe it, especially if it comes from multiple angles. So that was my experience of trauma, essentially, is this feeling of not being heard and knowing that you're living with something that's almost intolerable to survive with. And still yet, nobody seems to notice or the people who should be helping you aren't responding to your asks for help. But the awareness raising, yeah, that is important, but it doesn't go as far as as we would like it to go. But it has to be met by policy and services that are there for people. You know, there are very interesting things going on with early access services like the FREED model, rapid Mm -hmm. intervention for people with eating disorders. But that is the extreme minority of people. And we can't get carried away with thinking these examples of good practice are reaching everybody because they're really not. And actually, the London School of Economics analysis, the most recent one, said that you know one in four people with an eating disorder will ever get help um, and that is just such a shame and we think that we're doing such great work but when we step outside of that bubble most people with an eating disorder don't get any help at all and of course there is help out there and I would always say to people to go and ask for it but really don't take it personally in terms of the, the blame and who's the problem or what's the problem because the system, unfortunately is inadequate in a lot of places. And I've seen that from the inside. So one role that I have is with NHS England in a particular committee that's implementing a report, recommendations of a report that was made in 2017. And this is called the Ignoring the Alarms report from the Parliamentary Health Ombudsman, which is particularly related to one case of Avril Hart. And it's a very, very sad case where unfortunately she died as a result of clinical neglect and problems in the system. And this report says, you know, there are these big holes in the system, this implementation group, you have to go and fix it and implement these recommendations. Now, this report from 2017 is what, four years old. And so far, none of the recommendations have been implemented. Wow! And I sit on that group, the implementation group, as somebody with lived experience, trying to make sure that You know, these decisions have patience at the heart of them. And it's so difficult sometimes to go to those meetings and think, this is called an implementation group. What have we implemented? And whilst we have little steps, you know, we do make little bits of progress. When you take a step out of it, none of the recommendations have been implemented. So I think it's easy to get carried away in little bits of progress and little bits of hope. And of course, we want to be really hopeful and think, you know, how can we celebrate good practice where we see it but the bigger picture is worrying and I just co-wrote a paper for the Lancet Child and Adolescent Health about eating disorders during the pandemic and how with children and young people the rates of eating disorders presenting especially in emergency settings you know they're going through the roof and we don't have the response that we need to that. And a lot of it comes down to money and a lot of it comes down to politics. And as you can tell, I could go on about this all day and it makes me very passionate and actually makes me quite angry. But what makes me angry about it is that it could be different. Like we really could do things differently. We could have more resources put into eating disorders that could change people's lives. Because yes, we need more research into eating disorders, the efficacy of treatments that we have at best 40, 50% effective, Mm -hmm. that's not very good, right? But Mm -hmm. how much of that is to do with resources? Mm -hmm. How much of that is to do with actually investing in people's treatment earlier on? And in my experience, I lived for over six years with severe anorexia before I had any psychological treatment. And a lot of that time I was told that I was too underweight to have capacity to engage in treatment and I wonder if I'd have had some early intervention, how much money would have been saved in the NHS because I was a revolving door patient in A&E. Each time you go in, thousands of pounds. And I think how expensive is therapy really compared to that? So I am really passionate about this, because I believe it could be so much different. And we could tell a really positive story about eating disorders recovery, eating disorders treatment. As you know, there are loads of professionals out there who are so passionate about their job. There are loads of people with lived experience with so much to share with other people, and we need to help people to share these positive messages to share what works. And that requires big thinking and thinking outside these little tiny silos that we have, and we need to have a massive rethink of how much of a priority this is for society. Mm-hmm. We need to think about actually listening to people and people with lived experience have been saying for ages, things need to change. You've interviewed wonderful campaigners and people who are, who are really passionate about this too. And that is a source of evidence, that is data that is people saying you know things need to improve and it really needs to be listened to it's the same with treatment if people have to wait over a year to see anybody how can they be expected to suddenly be ready for therapy yeah. when they were ready when they asked one yeah. year ago you know so i think i think there are so many problems with that and we have these systems and treatment models that say you know you've got this many sessions you've got to be ready when you start and actually you know services have to meet people when they're ready, or we have to have systems that can flex in that kind of way. So I think, Mm -hmm. but I think that we need to have these big ideas and ultimately it has to come from a passionate and positive place. And when I do my work, it would be so easy to be confrontational in meetings Mm -hmm. or to bash services or say, you know, oh, GPs, they need more training because they're awful. They're not, people are doing the best that they can with the resources that they have. I firmly believe that and that's what I re- believe about recovery as well. And that's what I believe about living with an eating disorder. People are doing the best they can with the resources they have. We just need to really rethink the resources that are put into this area, because it could change lives. I could have had a different story where I recovered earlier and where I didn't have to live with so many years of pain and so much loss. And I think I want that to be possible for anybody in the future. So. All the awareness raising is great. All the policy work is great. But we have to remember the scale that we need. And we have to be ambitious about it. And we have to try and think about how can we connect together to make a bigger movement for it. Because little me individually on my own going to a meeting is okay. But when we join forces together, we can reach more people and amplify that kind of message. So hopefully that's Hopeful enough, and not just a really neg- a negative kind of story. Because I I firmly believe it can change, and I really hope that it does.
0: Yeah, I think you're completely right. I think I spoke about this with hope as well in the fact that awareness is fantastic and brilliant, and we do need to have people talking. But it's having something for people to then go to when they do mm. then talk. That's the important thing, and I think. For me, where I sit, it's that almost normalisation of the behaviours in society because we have become, you know, eating disorders, like you say, are increasing and I think disordered eating especially, is it's it's just normal now. So it's almost like people don't seek help for such a long time because... It is just seen as kind of what everybody's doing. Then that prolongs the time period that someone's struggling with an eating disorder, Mm. makes it even more difficult to go and talk to somebody. So then when you then get there and then they say, oh, sorry, you're not quite sick enough. You're then like, well, you know, I've, I've put myself in this vulnerable position of talking and now you're saying that it's not enough and like you say it's nobody's fault like we could all sit here and say you know gps turn people away but at the end of the day they're only bringing the knowledge to the table that they've been provided and they have to know so much about you know so many topics that it is a very difficult thing I think to navigate
1: yeah I think you're absolutely right about training and that's something that I work on trying to expand the amount of training we know that in medical schools most medical students will get an hour tops on eating disorders in their Mm -hmm. training and that's something that has been called out on that recommendation group that implementation group that I was talking about that we need to try and change that and I think that where people aren't trained they tend to fill in their knowledge, you know, gaps in their knowledge with stereotypes or their unconscious biases about what they think. And that is as good as going to anybody in society and just hoping that they might know. And I think the important point about, you know, the normalized nature of eating disorder behaviors or disordered eating in society, I think what's really interesting about that is when we're raising awareness, trying to raise awareness of the diversity of eating problems, because I think there are a lot of people who experience disordered eating and symptoms of eating difficulties that don't fit into a conventional stereotypical image of an eating disorder, or they don't themselves fit the characteristics. So it could be their behaviours or it could be things about them. And I think that the really important part is to try and broaden out what we think of as an eating disorder, because currently most people think it's anorexia. You go to a talk about eating disorders and the first one that they talk about is anorexia. Most people with an eating disorder don't have anorexia. Less than one in 10 people with an eating disorder are underweight. And we really need to sort of bang on about that all the time. And when I talk about my experiences, people are so interested in the anorexia and they're not interested in the bulimia at all. And they look at me now and they're like, oh, you're recovered, how did you recover? And I'm like, well, who said I was recovered just because I gained the weight. I recovered from one element of one eating disorder. What about the rest of it? And I think that I worry about people who don't fit the conventional stereotype that we are trying to change, but it has been decades of saying that eating disorders are skinny, white, teenage, middle-class girls. Yeah, and that stereotype doesn't help girls doesn't help anyone, (laughs) you know, it doesn't really help anybody because most people are not going to be that stereotype. But what about the guy in the gym who is there every day exercising on injuries and still exercising and only eating very prescriptive food and those protein shakes and, you know, do they even think that they might have a difficulty with eating? And we don't know because society is telling them, well done, you're smashing it, you're going every day, that is absolutely ideal, good on you. And do we know how they might feel if the gym suddenly closed? Well, maybe we do now because we have the lockdown. (laughs) Um, But you know, what about that rigidity? What about that psychological inflexibility that might come with that? Isn't that one of the very symptoms of an eating disorder? But it doesn't necessarily fit the characteristic, you know? So I think that we need to think about it from the professional point of view, like you said, but we also need to think more broadly in society about challenging what we think is healthy. Because actually I'm worried about my friends who go to the gym every day. I used to go to the gym every single day before the first lockdown and I didn't want to be there. And I hated it. I spent most of my time on Twitter probably, but like (laughs) I just really felt like I had to and it was compulsive and it was not good for me. And when the lockdown happened, I was distressed because I couldn't go to the gym. And then I realized this is not normal. And I didn't see that as part of my eating disorder because people applaud me for doing that. It's the same with yoga. I think that people automatically think that yoga is somehow good for you. Well, it's not good for you if you're doing power yoga for six hours a day. Yeah. It's not mindful. It's not going to make you feel calm. It's not going to be good for your mental health. So I think that all of these things are all about regulation, like we said at the beginning, and going to the gym if you enjoy it, if it's something that you could do without or you could do with, like, you know, you could take it or leave it, then then great. Would they ever think they fit into the category of an eating disorder? Would clinicians think that they do? And then well, what if they're actually causing themselves damage physically and mentally and not having a social life because they have to go to the gym first or starting to abuse steroids, which is a really common uh, thing, especially in certain communities. So I think that it's a number of factors that have to be addressed with that but it's about diversifying the messages that we give about eating disorders and and then there are problems with seeking help without clinicians recognising that this could be an eating disorder we need clinicians to have it on their minds but when you do recognise there is a problem and you end up seeking help and you might go to an eating disorder service for example then how is that gym bro going to feel walking up the stairs to the eating disorder clinic in Cambridge with all the butterflies on the wall. Yeah. You know, yeah. Do, do you think they will feel like this is a place for them? And then when they're handed the leaflet about menstruation, how, do they, how will they feel about that? Yeah. Or the textbook, which still has female pronouns?
0: I think your point about the diversification there is so important because... I mean I'm just focusing on one specific thing here but you know muscle dysmorphia is very common in men and one of the big things there is that they are trying to be and I'm doing speech marks here masculine so Hmm. like you say going into that eating disorder service with butterflies all over the place that is not going to be helpful in the slightest I mean Um, I
1: found that uncomfortable and I am in my I'm in my goddess pose all the time you know <laughs> I'm, re- I'm really comfortable with femininity masculinity you know I think these constructs need to be made less less rigid as well but I feel uncomfortable in that setting I've rarely seen another male patient and I've been in eating disorders for quite services mm-hmm. quite a lot I think I've seen one other male patient and I've never seen a male member of staff wow. and I think that for me that doesn't matter so much but what about somebody who really feels out of place in that setting are the services going to speak their language and i don't want to say that eating disorder services are services for women run by women because they're not but they definitely shouldn't be and people shouldn't have that feeling and unfortunately i do think that most eating disorder services are anorexia services and i think that that's just based on you know Perhaps these people are most physiologically at risk, doesn't mean they're most psychologically at risk. But I think that that's a really unfortunate thing that should absolutely change. If 90% of eating disorders are not anorexia, then the vast majority of patients in eating disorder services shouldn't have anorexia. But, you know, we need to try and break down some of these assumptions and barriers that mean that people who are in minority groups have, you know, a greater risk of developing eating problems are less likely to be understood when they do talk about them and face barriers to accessing help. Because like I said, right at the beginning, that isn't intrinsically to do with the eating disorder. That's all the systems that are around it that are making it even more difficult to live with and recover from something that's already hideously Mm -hmm. difficult in a lot of cases. So I think that these things all have to go together because sometimes like in my experience, I think harm is done to people just because they've been unlucky enough to have an eating disorder and it gets a lot worse and takes a lot longer to recover. And I've been lucky that I've found lots of ways to recover and to try and move on from that and try and reshape my experiences and my understanding of my experiences. But I worry that not everybody is as lucky or not everybody is is in that position or has the resources and the opportunities. So I think yeah, it's a really big subject, mm. easy to get quite depressed about. And I think that's mm. where I was coming at with the interview today because I was just in a bit of a down moment about it because mm. you can campaign out of passion and I do quite a lot of hopefully more inspiring talks than this one because I've been quite, quite negative so far. But it's okay sometimes to be like, oh, this is overwhelming. This yes. is quite depressing. I don't see the change that I want to see. And I'm still motivated. It just means I have to go back and recharge. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Wow. Thank you very much for that. I think that was such an insightful conversation. And I love the fact as well that you didn't just go along with things Like if I said something, you were like, "No, eh, let's, let's just go back. Like, I think that was really good. And there was a lot of clarification in there. So thank you very much.
1: My pleasure. Just because you're the host doesn't mean I have to respect you. Oh, I'm joking. Not. but no, if had, I
0: say something. We've had quite a
1: lot of banter for, for background for anybody who just thinks I'm really rude. We've had quite <laughs> a lot of banter on Instagram, haven't we? And we have, absolutely. You used to serve me coffee in I
0: do- and cakes, the little bakery. So.
1: And croissant, Yeah, so how things have changed. Um, it's so nice to see you from another side and that is so important to remember isn't it we all have different identities we can be one thing and another thing we can have an eating disorder and we can have so much more going on in our lives and so much more to offer and I think it's so important to remember that especially if you feel I'm just the eating disorder it's overwhelming me there is so much more to all of us than just one thing least of all an eating disorder
0: yeah um and just as a final question which I've been asking everybody that comes on the podcast. And I feel like you won't like this question because it's quite um it's a broad question that won't suit everybody, but I'm going to ask it you anyway and see what you I feel like a
1: difficult patient <laughs> now. <laughs> i'm feeling (laughs) triggered
0: you're not being difficult at all you are putting things in the truth box so the question i've been asking everybody is what would be your top tip or best advice for somebody who is looking to recover from their eating disorder and just to give them that kind of motivation or courage to leave their eating disorder behind
1: that's really hard Ending on a hard question like that.
0: <laughs> I guess
1: leaving your eating disorder behind sounds really easy, doesn't it? And then we know that it's not. And I suppose I'm a bit torn because I would love to say, go and ask for help and it will be there and there are things that can help you and there are people out there who can help you. I mean, there are people who can help you. It's just really difficult sometimes to find them. Yeah. And I think... I want to say that, and I don't feel confident saying it because there's so much more work to do. And I don't want that to come across as negative in terms of don't go and get help, or, you know, everything's terrible because everything isn't terrible. It's just, I hope that comes across as validating that if people go and ask for help, which is what I would say to anybody, then if you don't get the help that you feel that you need when you feel that you need it, that is not your fault. That is because there are big systemic issues, which I am becoming more and more aware of and think really need to change. That is not anybody's fault. So I would encourage people to go and get help. I suppose in light of all those difficulties with the system, I think it's so important that people mobilise as best as they can other support so that's outside of the NHS whether it's friends, family, now it's easy to say because not everybody has friends and family all around them all the time they can reach out to and I felt extremely lonely a lot of the time during my experience of eating difficulties and treatment and things and it can be so hard to reach out and I hope that the burden isn't just on people who are struggling to reach out. I'd almost like to say to people who are struggling, Like go to their friends and family and tell them to reach out to the person who's struggling because you know when you're really in it or really feeling unwell it is so hard to do that and I don't just want to give people a big long list of things to do but I would say try and think about you know whilst getting that professional support is important think about are there any other options are there other ways of being creative about this are there people that you can rely on Is there anybody that you can rely on? Is there an organisation that you could get in touch with that maybe isn't the NHS? So there are fantastic charities like Seed, Beat, First Steps, so many charities that I could, I'm obviously going to miss loads of them out, (laughs) but do try and find those too and connect in with positive recovery focused communities that you relate to, that you feel speak to you, that don't exclude you. Twitter, I found a really great source of support. And whilst it's not, the professional support that you need, it is affirming to know that other people are out there with compassion and with empathy because that isn't, you know, without value. So I suppose think outside the box. Think about what you enjoy. Maybe there are activities that you would find therapeutic that aren't classical therapy. You know, think about those. Maybe there are things that you've lost through having had an eating disorder that you could maybe bring back in, perhaps with support, even if it's something that's, A creative activity or something very low pressure Mm. and we're always trying to keep connected with those parts of you that are not to do with the eating disorder and remembering that there is so much more to life and that there is a life worth living even if you can't see it right now and maybe especially because you can't see it right now you have to keep that sort of flame of hope alive so that's a very long answer (laughs) i think i would probably want to give them a hug um but yeah it's a
0: covid friendly hug a
1: covid friendly yogic palms together (laughs) namaste but yeah do reach out hopefully it's not too exhausting to reach out and find the support that you need Mm. and that isn't your fault if it is
0: whilst that conversation with James maybe was quite difficult to listen to it wasn't the most positive I think it was so important to Educate everybody on what is needed in treatment. I think it's so easy to assume that everybody has experienced the same thing or everybody feels the same and it's just not the case. So not only have we got to start increasing awareness more, talking about things more, but it's also it's that individualization that is really important. Next week we will be joined by Kate Winter. Kate is somebody I met at my time at Warwick University when I was still in recovery from my eating disorder and she has made so many changes in the three years that I've known her, in her progression, her love of yoga, and how that has helped her, very similar to James, in to find herself and who she actually is, rather than listening to that eating disorder voice. A, a teacher said to me many years ago, when I was still very poorly, but I was I was practicing yoga, he, he looked me in square in the eye and he said, when you try and control everything, you control nothing. If you enjoyed listening today you won't want to miss next week's episode so be sure to subscribe to be one of the first to hear it. Please also like, comment and share this podcast with anyone you feel that may need support at the moment. Not only those struggling with eating disorders but also their loved ones as this can be a very difficult time for everyone. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses and this podcast aims to motivate and inspire individuals along their path of recovery. If you are struggling with an eating disorder, charities like Beat, Seed and First Steps have great resources. Please also reach out to your local GP to see how you can gain support for your eating disorder. See you next time. Bye.